you're listening to the Carrero Podcast. This is Malia Hoffman, and I'm here with Fred Ramirez. We would like to introduce you to our new journal website. It's called CarreroJournal.org, spelled K-O-R-E-R-O Journal.org. And you can go there and see that we are making a call for articles and papers. And what we'd like to do is invite you as educators or researchers or even your students to write up and contribute to our online journal. And you can see the submission guidelines there. And also I would like to point you to our edxglobal.org website. And there you can see all of the great projects that our students are working on and our initiatives globally. And you can also make a donation through Venmo, PayPal with your credit card and get a tax exempt ID. So again, edxglobal.org to see what our students and we are up to globally and Carrero Journal to see our new online journal initiative. Thank you so much. Today our guest is Dr. Ebony Williams. Dr. Williams is a tenure-track assistant professor at California State University, Sacramento in the Marriage and Couples and Family Counseling Program. In addition, some of her duties include being a member of the Sac State Division of Inclusive Excellence, mentor for the Cooper Woodson College Mentorship Program and the McNair Scholars Program, assisting with undergraduate students, research projects. Dr. Williams is also a California Faculty Association department leader. All right, Dr. Williams, thank you so much for joining us today. So excited to have you with us. Um, You have an incredibly diverse and interesting background with passions in many areas. Can you share us what inspired you to work with these populations? For example, your LGBTQ population and individuals with uh, the Department of Corrections. Absolutely. Thank you both for having me uh, this morning. Um, I I guess my my passion is just stemmed from, uh, you know, growing up in the Bay Area in Oakland, um, interacting with many different people, many walks of life. Uh, I always, I was always interested in you know, just knowing people's history, how they got to where they got to, you know, what their, what we term narrative now, what's their story. Um, and it kind of inspired me to work with uh, people of all walks of life um, based on a lot of times being prejudged or misunderstood um, throughout my life. Uh, working with LGBTQ plus individuals, I am a member of the community. I identify as cisgender uh, female lesbian. Um, and uh, going to school, uh, going to graduate school, we were learning about various populations. We were work, uh, learned about various disparities uh, in resources, uh, being underserved or inappropriately served. Uh, and this uh, was one group um, that uh, fit in that category. I worked with our LGBTQ plus members for many years in a community mental health. Um, and I just had a passion for listening to individuals who may have felt like they were dismissed or invisible 
or not seen and not heard. Um, and that's not all members of our LGBTQ plus community, right? Um, but there was some, you know, there was something that was calling me to, that was drawing me to a population that's so dear to myself. And our individuals uh, who were uh, incarcerated, I feel like that culture is uh, is uh, is uh, in invisible, right? They are they are uh, incarcerated away from us in our communities. And I worked for the Department of Juvenile Justice, and um, I knew that our children, our youth, even though they were incarcerated at that time, there will be at some point that they would come back into our communities. And, um, you know, I wanted to be a part of the, the solution, um, letting them know that there are individuals who care, that, you know, there are opportunities for change. Um, there are opportunities to, um, you know, make amends. Um, there's opportunities to not follow the same steps that you did to get you incarcerated in the first place. So there are various opportunities. And I just feel like if individuals or professionals um, would make space for individuals who feel as though they're invisible or they may have been uh, survivors of trauma, neglect, uh, individuals who aren't heard or feel invisible, then I feel like that helps the individual feel whole, right? And if the individual is feeling whole, I truly believe that they feel better about themselves. And if you feel better about yourself, then you treat others better. So that's kind of how I, I think about that. Yeah, I think I really like the way that you put it, that um, the incarcerated population is invisible, right? It's out of sight, Absolutely. out of mind. Um, especially when we're talking about juveniles, we can't give up on them, right? They can't be a lost right. cause at this at this point. Like there's, they have so much time ahead of them, and yes. and typically, like you said, it's something related to trauma that got yes. them to that point. And um, you know, one thing my sister said to me real like real early on is the the ones that need. Um, the ones that are the hardest to love need the most love. Need, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, so. and it's interesting that within the field, <clears throat> what I what I pride myself on is being patient. Yeah. And providing a safe space and being consistent. And these are the things that I uh, I teach and I train my students on, right? To be present, to be consistent, to be on time, mm -hmm. to be patient to be open. And that helps to build that human connection. And those were, were some of the things that I brought into the spaces, or those were the things that I brought into those spaces. And even though working with our individuals who are incarcerated in particular, is who I'm speaking about, um, even working with those youth, uh, even in hard times when they, you know, weren't necessarily feeling 100%, even in the space of being incarcerated, right? Uh, there was, I provided a space for them or uh, a sort of respite, right? So they could come in, not necessarily have to have the mask on in order to survive when they go back into the day rooms and back onto the yards and things like that. It was a space for them to be able to talk about, you know, their families, their history, um, various experiences if they were comfortable doing so. Or maybe they just wanted to come in and play some checkers, you know? Maybe they just wanted to be able to leave, you know, one building 
walk outside, get some sunlight, come to my office, you know, breathe a little bit, come back. All of those things, um, I feel like are therapeutic yeah. in the process. So they're different, right? There are different aspects of therapy, not necessarily always, you know, sitting in the chair right. and the client sitting in the chair. And then we're having these various conversations and analyzing what's going on for them in those moments. Sometimes it's, it's just, you know, being in a safe space mm-hmm. with someone who you, who you trust. And that, and that's very important. You know, it's a, it's interesting after months of waiting, I, um, I was finally able to get a letter from one of my cousins. That's, 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 that's doing life. And he's, mm-hmm. and he's been in for now about 30 years now, 40 years. Um, and he was, and I got the letter yesterday. Um, and so I was just glad that I was able to yeah. hear from yes. him. And he was, he was talking about, about that, just the, in this, in this day and age of COVID, how lonely it is, yes. you know, even, you know, because what they're saying is that they, they can't go to their, to their store for the reason that there's not, there, there isn't a lot of food there for the reason that the vendors aren't able to come in because of COVID. Yes. Um, so that being said, um, on the, on the flip side, there's, there's, there's people who would say, well, they deserve to be there. You know, we shouldn't be doing, you know, we shouldn't be doing anything for them. So what are those, what are those aspects? What are those real life things that, that, that we could actually do? Um, given the, given how our incarcerated system is? That's a great question. Um, well, first, we don't condone those behaviors, right? I mean, to support an individual who's incarcerated does not mean that you are condoning the behavior or the reasons for them being in that space that they're in. Right. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, if we're talking about rehabilitation, there still needs to be some sort of human connection. There still needs to be some sort of therapeutic service, uh, some way for the individual to be able to speak their voice or to tell their story. Uh, I, I do believe that there is a possibility for change even in while being incarcerated, uh, even in those spaces that are more controlled or where there are impacted stressors uh, and the point is, is to not give up on these individuals. Uh, even if you're, even if, if, I'll give you an example. Even in my practice, when I was working for the Department of Corrections, I would say hello or good morning or good evening. Those types of interactions um, can speak volumes to how the individual, you know, feels about themselves in that the message is, I see you and you're important. And I'm going to say good morning. Out of respect, you being a human being and I being a human being. Uh, and those are, I think, the qualities that are missed. Um, uh, and, and at this point, I'm just talking, I'm really speaking about human connection right now. I'm not speaking about, you know, the heinous crime or the, mis- or the misdemeanor. I'm not speaking about that. I'm speaking about the individual in the space with you. How do you connect? How do you communicate with them? How do you um, let them know that you see them and that you're listening? I feel like you do that by being present and non-judgmental. 
um, and listening. And, and I did that for, you know, for a number of years. Um, and was change possible? Yes. Was it incremental? Yes. Was it, in, is, was it insidious? Yes. Was it, did it take a long time? Yes. These things aren't, you know, they, they, uh, they don't happen overnight. Um, but I just feel like you, you can't, you can't give up on individuals, you know, um, whether they're, you know, incarcerated for a month, 30 years, 15 years, um, depending on their crime or, you know, what they've been charged with. Um, uh, I believe that services should be provided, um, and, uh, you know, there should be support around the individuals. Uh, of course, this, these are ideal situations, right? If we could do these things, I would hope that we would. Um, but I also think that we're, we're in those spaces uh, when we're talking about lack of resources or, or individuals who may not feel like, you know, uh, mental health services are important. In those spaces, we make lemonade out of the limits. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, you're, you, you seem like a, like a very impassioned, caring type of person. Let's backtrack now all the way to, yeah. <laughs> to when you were, you, were, you, were, you were little. Tell us about life growing up and what are some, what are some aspects that, that you can glean? Or just tell us your story of your K-12 years. Um, you know, how, how was it? And, oh, man. Yeah. K through 12. <clears throat> uh, school overall, I had a, an overall, it was, it was, a, it was a, a, a great experience overall, even with the instances of when I spoke uh, as the keynote of, you know, uh, professional educators who doubted me or, you know, um, didn't support me or question my abilities without knowing me. Uh, I think the reason why uh, a lot of those things I was able, able to overcome well, was because I had a support system, uh, a strong support system at home and a focus on education and uh, my mother, my grandmother, my aunts uh, driving me understand, with the understanding that Education is what I'm going to need to be successful. Um, and it was always in grant. These are things that were talked about, you know, all the time. There were expectations um, that I had to meet. Um, as a child, I knew that someone was watching, right? Um, my K through six experience <clears throat> was a huge uh, part of my foundation also. Uh, predominantly black school in West Oakland, Prescott Elementary. Um, I remember uh, just feeling as though we were family. Our parents could come to our classrooms. Our grandparents could come to our classrooms. Our teachers could call and say, hey, you know, so or so need you to come on over here for a minute. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> if students run on their best behavior. Um, uh, our, our, you know, our parents were, you know, a working class. Um, I remember being in class, uh, well, kindergarten, first grade, then I skipped a grade to the third. 
And um, I remember my family being so excited, you know, oh my goodness, you skipped the grade. You know, what is that going to look like? You know, um, I think there was a bit of apprehension just a little bit because of my age. You know, at this point, if I'm skipping a grade, then my my cohort members are almost two years older than me, you know, based on what my, my birthday is and school. So there, I think there was a bit of apprehension about that, but I didn't even learn about that until I was an adult. Then my mom and grandmother was like, oh my goodness, you know, how is that going to work out? Um, what's interesting about um, my fourth through sixth grade experience is that we stayed as a cohort with the same teacher. And this was something that was new for our school. I don't know if any other schools were doing this, um, but we had um, a real strong connection with our teacher. Her name was Miss Wright. So all of us were fourth, fourth, fifth, and sixth, we stayed with each other. And I think that really had a positive impact also because we were comfortable with each other. We knew each other, the expectations. Um, there were also times when, you know, uh, I can remember we were reading when it was reading time or it was math time, or, you know, art time. And Miss Wright would turn on Gladys Knight and the Pips and, you know, we're listening to music and, I remember singing, you know, as, as a class, we we're just singing Midnight Train to Georgia, or we're listening to Stevie Wonder, you know, all these wonderful things, the celebration of blackness and black people. Um, and at that time, I didn't know it as that. It was just what it was, you know, going to school and, yeah. and learning, and, you know, thriving, you know, it was, it was great. Um, with, with tremendous expectations, um, not only from us as students, uh, but the administrators, you know, um, took pride in, you know, our reputation uh, as, as, uh, as Prescott Elementary. And then, like I said, uh, you know, um, my grandmother and my mother uh, made sure that through open enrollment, I went to uh, schools that uh, were predominantly white because of the resources. And this is uh, seventh grade on through 12th. And there was a dramatic shift in uh, my experience. Um, there wasn't the familial feel. There wasn't the, uh, the nurturing. Um, there wasn't the, you know, the sense of visibility. Those things were lost. And at the time, being 11 years old, that's not necessarily anything that I could, you know, connect the dots with. It just felt different. Uh, and I think that once those things started to feel different, I was able to then lean into my support systems. Unfortunately, everyone doesn't have that experience to be able to lean into their support systems. Not everyone has the foundation um, to be able to do that or have individuals around them where they, that they trust enough to do that. Uh, so when my hands stopped getting called or, you know, the teacher told us to go back to Africa, you know, all those different things, I was able to talk to my mother and my grandmother about what that was. Mm -hmm. uh, another reason I was uh, so-called bust to school 
was because my grandmother told me specifically, you have to learn how to interact with white people. Wow. You're going to go out into the world. You're going to, you know, become employed and you're going to have to learn how to interact. And there are various expectations and there are various ways they may, they may see you. All these different uh, protective factors that she was providing me. Um, I went into those spaces already know, having a sense of what the possibilities could be. And uh, whenever those microaggressive behaviors that were being perpetrated against me, when those things would happen, I would be able to go home to my family to be able to talk about those. Um, uh, get refilled again spiritually, so to speak. Um, uh, help, you know, to continue to develop my esteem and to continue to understand that I was still this brilliant young lady. You know, they always thought I was so brilliant. <laughs> so this, these aren't my words. Because <laughs> brilliant young lady and you can still do it. And, you know, um, and there were, there were a few times where my mother had to come to the school um, for uh, things that were that were um, unfairly concluded upon. And, um, you know, we just pushed through it. You know, uh, being Black is an everyday triumph, struggle, walk. You know, you, you, you push through. So I don't... I don't know if we all, I, I don't, for myself, I don't know if I always have the words for what that is. Um, but you push through. And, uh, uh, and once that happens, so we're talking about foundation, elementary school, lack of foundation in junior high, trying to figure out this culture shock, what's happening here. I'm no longer seen as one of the smartest kids in school or the smartest kid in school. Although I'm raising my hand all the time and my test scores say something different, I don't feel it, right? So <clears throat> as I'm getting older, I go into high school and uh, growing up, I was always, you know, out with the boys, hanging, jumping fences, playing basketball, all over the place, bikes, everything, you know. And uh, here's where sexism comes in, right? Because growing up, boys always had sports. There was basketball, baseball. There were all these different things and nothing for girls, uh, <clears throat> uh, especially for elementary and junior high. Well, we go into high school, and guess what? Basketball is there. Oh, my goodness, basketball. So um, I began to play basketball. And uh, I excel in basketball quickly. So then my identity shifted a bit. Um, it was more about, you know, Ebony the baller, Ebony the student athlete at this point. Uh, so, <clears throat> of course, with that title, then, then teachers started treating me a little different, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, oh, you know, whatever, wherever you need to go, whatever you need to do, no problem. You know, uh, I don't know if that was always the best thing, <laughs> you know, when you're young out there. Um, <clears throat> uh, but yet there was still, you know, the struggle because, you know, I was working with 
excuse me, counselors at the time, you know, trying to, to make sure that I was on track for college because of, again, that was always the trajectory um, from my family standpoint. And then, of course, if that's the trajectory and then they're teaching you and they're, they're you know, implementing these particular uh, practices in your life, meaning, you know, uh, more enriching practices, then, of course, I'm buying into this, too. So I believe I'm going to college also. So then when I'm believing I'm going to college and then I go to the council and I begin to ask, you know, how to set up my track to go to college. And then they say, well, what makes you think you're going to go to college? Or you'll never get the UC Davis. It's like, well, what? <laughs> you know, so there were, there were, there was a lot of balancing, you know, that, that I had to do. And I don't, I didn't see it as that at the time. It was me living life going to school, playing ball, making sure I did my homework, uh, making sure I was providing myself a space to be able to just, to do just what my, my grandparents and my parents said I was going to do, make them proud. Yes, I know I can go into school, uh, go to college and, you know, make something of myself. And that's, that's what I did. That's what I did. Um, yeah. It's interesting that when I spoke to all of you before, um, what I wanted to say, if I didn't say it then, was that I was one of the <clears throat> one of the popular kids in school. I was tall for my age. Um, never really had any bullying issues or anything like that, and yet because I was gay and had not come out, I still had that that piece of myself that was still hidden, it was still afraid to come out yeah. um, for various reasons, right? I mean, the coming out process, you know, has not always been this most warm, fuzzy experience for many individuals. So um, I was afraid that I would lose the only people in my life who I love so dearly. Um, and that and that impacted me in some ways. It, it impacted me in some ways at, at school. Um, uh, I didn't necessarily feel like I was my whole self, you know, even though there may have been assumptions that I was lesbian at the time. Um, it was just something that I kind of, I tried to tuck away for as long as I could, um, based on what I, I just said, you know, for fear of losing my loved ones. So, um, that made it a bit tricky. Although, like I said, um, having those support systems in place, uh, there was still, there was still something there. Yeah. It sounds like your family support, um, at least educationally has really been very forward thinking, very progressive and, and very realistic. Um, just, Absolutely. you know, understanding how race and, you know, color exists mm -hmm. or coexists in the world or in America, right? Right. Um, how has that experience and that influence from your family and growing up maybe influenced where you are today and, like, what you're doing with, um, you know, your current work today? I think that... Um well, I, I think that that forward thinking was everything. 
um, I think that it was the foundation for me to learn how to uh, be an open and receptive individual to individuals of difference. Uh, with me understanding that all of us are different first, right? And understanding um, how I impact the world. Um, the various experiences I've had with individuals who have misunderstood me or mislabeled me or misgendered me. And because of those interactions, uh, well, let me say it like this, because of their mistakes, right? I have been impacted negatively. Um, and I feel like that built my compassion around how to better serve our communities. Um, and to know that uh, if I've had these experiences, you know, there's no telling how many other people have had these experiences, if not worse. And um, I think that it has impacted me as an adult in my everyday life uh, on an everyday basis. So meaning that I'm not just this compassionate person when I practice, or I'm not just this compassionate person when I'm teaching. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, this is who I, this is who I am. And I really believe it's based off of, you know, the foundation that my family provided for me. I believe it's also based off of my experiences of, like I said, being misunderstood or misgendered or not feeling as though I'm being listened to, um, uh, maybe feeling a bit invisible at times. And I feel like that built my empathy um, towards others. Uh, and those are the things that I, again, that I um, teach my students, you know, um, that there's power and privilege um, and we all have it. It depends on the day, it depends on the situation. It depends on the role we're in. Um, and those things can change in any moment. So to be humble in that, to understand that um, those, th those things can change. And at some point you may need a favor. At some point you may need assistance. And uh, to be gracious um, when we're interacting with each other, I think that we've lost that exponentially. Mm -hmm. in our society. I feel like um, we're, we're prepping to answer or defend a statement instead of listening first and taking it in. Um, and, uh, and all the while still, still fighting for social justice, right? So, <laughs> you know, we, we aren't, uh, you know, this isn't a Pollyannic view. Um, that I'm speaking of, I'm, I'm speaking of trying or, or I'm speaking of how to balance it all, how to be compassionate, hold boundaries, how to listen to individuals who do not hold the same values as you and yet still be compassionate and fight for justice. Um, coming together in solidarity within our unique differences and you know, fighting for similar causes. All those things are balances and they take um, uh, deep thought, uh, difficult conversation.
um, being able to agree to disagree. Um, and I think part of that comes from, and I'm speaking for myself, me as being a black woman, lesbian, and having to be flexible within a society that is not always flexible. Um, society doesn't bend for me, <laughs> right? So I have, and I have had to learn how to navigate in a society that is not built for me. Um, and I take those experiences and I feel like I sublimate those experiences um, into messages of, you know, love, support, empathy, kindness. And it's not always easy. This isn't easy. Um, but um, it's necessary. You know, um, Ebony, one of the things that a lot of people struggle with, with what you were talking about, is that um, especially those of us in academe, um, when, when we write about things like empathy and compassion and justice and blah, 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 they think that we're just talking about it without, yeah. without understanding, no, this is who I am. Yes. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't drive up to the, to the university and all of a sudden I put on this hat. It's like right. my, my everyday life when I'm out at the, at the, at the market, I am, this, yes. you know, I, I am the very same person. Yes. Um, and so one of the things that I'm, that I'm interested in is that you, that you're the um, founder and the, and the CEO of, of advanced integrative services. Yes. Um, and as, 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 as you were speaking, I was getting the sense that you get as much from others as you give. So yes. given that, how has COVID affected you as a, as a, as a professional um, you know, giving, you know, giving these services to, you know, others, how is COVID affecting them, but how is it affecting you because you're not able to get back? Oh, absolutely. Thank you for that. Uh, since COVID is, I like for all of us has been a whirlwind, right? It's been upside down. It's been unprecedented. What do we do? We've never been here before. Uh, it's been a, in, in, in regards to what you're asking me, it's been a bit of a lonely process, mm. right? Um, uh, providing technical assistance to, you know, county agencies, community-based organizations, uh, alcohol and other drug uh, uh, rehabilitative centers, um, state agencies, uh, the, 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 the trainings are usually face-to-face, -face, right? So you're able to interact and, and commune and fellowship with individuals. And um, there's been a, a, a huge disconnect, right, in being able to, to have those type of connections. Um, but as we were moving through COVID, uh, what I'm finding is that... Uh, there's still a possibility to make those connections even through Zoom. Uh, I think with, you know, uh, the message uh, and, and it's not necessarily the same, but uh, 
there's still opportunity to still plant seeds, right? And yeah. I, I consider myself a seed planter. Um, there may be times when, you know, you're having this conversation and the individual still wants to debate you or, you know, we can leave the conversation as we agree to disagree. But to, be, to have had the conversation, for individuals to have listened to the message, for individuals to have questions regarding the message, that speaks volumes. Uh, and, and during COVID, that, that's where I am right now. I, I, I want to continue to plant the seed. Uh, when we're able to, you know, gather safely again, then I think that, you know, the, the energy in which we exchange with each, with each other, um, I think that, you know, of course, that'll bring more of it, more um, more of an emphasis to what you know the message is in the first place. But I also feel like it continues to build that human connection, and I, I think that once we are able to come back together in those ways, it'll really be it won't be taken for granted. Wow. You know, I think that individuals, when we are able to come back together and have these meaningful conversations, I would hope and I envision that they're even taken more seriously than they were before um, because of the, the distance, yeah. right? So uh, because of the, of the distance, maybe where I may have thrown in a joke or two, you know, because we're together, I'll replace that with a bit more information because we don't have that, you know, that kind of, literally that kind of space mm -hmm. to have those uh those nonverbal types of communications. So um those are how I've made some of my adjustments. But but it's been it's been it's been difficult. Um, um difficult yet manageable. And um I've had you know uh, positive reception, you know, even with the adjustments we've had to make. Yeah, so you also um, are incorporating some Maori practices into your treatment plan of your patients. And as you know, or maybe you don't know, but like Carrero is a Maori word for um, storytelling. Yes. The name of the podcast. Um, can you explain to us a little bit about, you know, what that looks like or what that means? Well, when I was in New Zealand, I uh, implemented Maori practices into uh, my clients' uh, behavioral treatment plans. I worked for Tamaki Aranga, uh, which is a part of uh, Middlemore Hospital in Otara, Auckland. Uh, um, and the place in which I worked, it was inpatient. And it was really institutionalized at the time when I was there. Cinder block walls, fluorescent lights. We had long keys that were wow. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty institutionalized. You turn, you put the key in, clink, open doors, close the door, clink, you know. Wow. Um, and in the beginning, uh, folks were, uh, they were duly diagnosed individuals, NZ Maori, NZ European uh, men. And, uh, the first few weeks or months, you know, uh, I was just trying to basically, you know, get immersed in the culture, you know, I'm shadowing, uh, you know, asking questions and, and uh, just, you know, remaining in this, 
in this space of humility, right? Because this is not my culture. I'm learning uh, someone else's culture. And the goal was to uh, make the unit more cultural, right? To celebrate the culture of individuals who were there. So uh, what they did was, and I was a part of this, but of course I'm, I'm, you know, they're holding my hand as I'm walking through this with them. Uh, we invited the uh, elders, Katamatuas, mm. into the spaces. And our Katamatuas talked to us about what would be best for the individuals within the units. And so uh, we began to talk about Karakia, which is prayer, Wayata, which is songs. Um, our elders talked about bringing in the families of these individuals. Uh, we incorporated Karakia and Wata, excuse me, Wata, um, in various stages of the day. So we began to, to make schedules, right? And we have Karakia first, and then they have breakfast, and then we'd have uh, Wayata, then we'd have, um, if we're going to provide them with some type of CBT intervention, you know, we're going to do those things. Uh, they had courtyards where we invited them to come out in the courtyards and you know um, uh, you know feel the sunshine feel the air coming out of those rooms you know yeah. interact and, and fellowship with us um, we incorporated artwork and we began to paint the walls of uh, you know vibrant colors and uh, various uh, symbolic artwork of the Maori people and Within, within days to weeks, individuals began to come out of those rooms. They weren't laying in the beds for hours at a time. Um, if, nothing, if nothing more for, but for Karakia, they would come out and then have breakfast with us. They weren't even having breakfast with us. They'd have breakfast in the room or they'd sleep through breakfast. I'm just giving you examples, right? And we began to see more of the, of the clients in the day room or in, in the lunch room or in the courtyards, we began to uh, uh, establish appointments where they would you know, see their families and the families would come and see them. Some individuals even started you know, going with their social worker to the grocery stores and coming back and you know, just trying to reset, you know, um, uh, re-engaging with, you know, ADLs, you know, taking showers and um, saying good morning and, you know, watching a bit of TV, taking their medications on time. You know, those things were making so many changes. Um, and, and it was, and, and those type of changes seemed like it happened almost overnight. Wow. Yeah, and when I say overnight, relatively speaking, let's say a few weeks, folks were coming on out. When I first started, there were maybe be one or two people, you know, hanging out in the day room or, you know, one person. You tell folks it's breakfast time or high tea and no one comes out, you know. And once we began to incorporate Maori culture into the spaces and they could see it, they could hear it, they could feel it, they could sing it, they could say it. It was, it was, 
it was it was uh, something really remarkable to see. Yeah, that sounds really inspiring. Oh yeah, and just oh yeah, I I wish I could have stayed longer to yeah. see. Um, and just like a holistic like yeah. approach to it, right? Like just kind of taking care of that whole person and their spiritual absolutely. needs as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. Uh, and it's interesting that at the time in which I went, that's where we were. You know, that's where they were headed. You know, that that particular department yeah. they were trying to figure out how can we get these individuals, you know, to to feel as though they have a sense of life. You know, how can we can't have them laying in bed all day. You know, that's that's not healthy. They aren't interacting with anyone. That's not healthy. Mm-hmm. They they eat they eat and then they go back to the room. That's not healthy. What can we do? And those and that's those are the things that we came up with. So it was really, really inspiring. Um, and we and we uh, we uh, ended up instead of having uh, the elder come in once a week. We were able to be have them come in at least four times a week. Wow! Right? Yeah. And then we were able to those practices that I spoke of; those were implemented daily. Right. So there was always this celebration of culture, this celebration of you are not invisible. We see you. We hear you. We want to celebrate you. And uh, those are some things that I I most certainly brought back with me um, when working with clients um i'm not practicing now but uh as when I, when i'm teaching my courses these are the things that i talk to my students about how do you, how can you help your clients celebrate themselves what can they tell you about them um that you know that speaks to their resilience um their hardiness uh, their level of of compassion for others, their, you know, willingness to want to keep living, right? Um, Because at this point, you know, uh, life is pretty damn stressful to say, (laughs) to to put it mild, you know? So how can, when when your client comes into the the safe space, you know, what are some of the, the aspects of them that you can, that you can help them celebrate, uh, and that, and of course, that's not to uh, gloss over or avoid the presenting issue, right? Um, but I do believe that when we're working with individuals who are experiencing um, mental illness, and they may have been in these spaces for so long, I believe they sometimes they have to be reminded. Um, and then when they're reminded of their hardiness, of their resilience, of, of the fact that they chose to come in when they didn't have to, all those things should be celebrated, and, and that helps to build uh, their confidence and their motivation around the possibilities of change or, um, you know, the possibilities of continuing, you know, to move forward in life. You know, that's that's just a great message for anyone who's interacting with anyone else yes you know or for or for us just as individuals to be able to look in the mirror and go wow you did a pretty damn good job yeah, <laughs> it is. yeah. Well, i'm 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 proud of you yeah. you know which which for uh, many people it's difficult 
Yes. Um, yes. But um, but we we want to be true to our to our time. Um, one of the one of the things that we that we always ask all of our guests at the at the end is mm-hmm. what what is their call to action. So, Ebony, what is what is the one takeaway takeaway you would wish for people to learn from you? Your one takeaway. One, your one call to action. <laughs> oh, my one call to action. to continue to appropriately serve. That's my call to action, to continue to appropriately serve. Appropriately serve our underserved, inappropriately served, unjustly served. Yeah. Yeah. And appropriately served means I put appropriately on there on purpose. Many times we think that we're doing something great. That's a good point. And we're not. That's a good point. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't and I didn't add anything to serve because to serve is expansive. Yeah. It, it's it's far reaching. And and the more I serve, I, I hope the more I appropriately serve the more I hope to reach other individuals who will appropriately serve. And it, and it grows exponentially in that way. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's perfect. Yeah. Ebony, thank you for your time today. Thank you for all your hard work and, um, you know, passion and compassion with, you know, the populations that you work with. And um, it was really a pleasure to hear you speak it's, today. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you both for your time. And, and thank you for having me. I appreciate you. Thank mm-hmm. you.